Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of 25 Stories That Made MLS, and guess what? Recording in Atlanta, it's raining again. Oh my god, it's always raining here. No, it's not always raining here, but when it does, it's fast, it's a huge storm, it passes by, or, like we said before, it sticks around for way too long. Yeah. Well, we're still on schedule, we're still committed to the podcast, and my god, we're at Episode 5. Episode 5. You are... Nital Raman. And you're the host... Of this podcast. And I am... Tudor Raman. And I am... Well, we can't say the word expert anymore. You don't like it. So let's just say uh, MLS Nerd Storyteller. I, you know what? I like that. I'll take that. MLS Nerd Storyteller is exactly who I am as okay. a person. Great. So yeah, we've been talking about a lot of different things on this podcast. Uh, we've talked about... You know, a singular event, an amazing event that's inspired somebody to, you know, make certain business decisions. We've had a lawsuit. We've had, um, you know, players. We've had businessmen. We, we've talked about a bunch of different things. Um, what are we talking about in episode five? We're talking about, and I'm not kidding, I think this is the most important meeting um, in Major League Soccer history. And it happens in a ranch um, of one of the owners. How so? How is this the most important yeah. meeting. Um, I think we'll get there, but let's start from the very beginning, right? As as we like to do here. As you like to do here. <laughs> I know you don't like to do it as much as I do, but... It's, it's all right, man. It's, it's fine. Um, so let's, let's, let's rewind the clock back to... 1999. And we're still in the late 90s. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. I'll check back in at episode like 20-something, see where we are. <laughs> um, 1999. The... Uh, League, I mean, uh, we talked about it. <laughs> like, it's it's expanding, but it's, like, on shaky ground. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the owners, specifically, they're having doubts if the league is going to last, right? Um, and there's two groups of owners on what, on what they want to do about it. You have one group of owners that are, like, we need to invest more. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, Lamar Hunt, Uncle Lamar, as, as we talked about earlier. And uh, Phil Anschutz, which we kind of mentioned before, um, but he's also called Uncle Phil. I think Phil. very, very briefly, somewhere along Alan Rothenberg's story, it yeah. comes up. Yeah, and so those two owners really want to invest more. Okay. Um, we really haven't talked about Phil Anschutz, so I'll give you a little bit of background on him. Sure. He is also a, a son of an oil tycoon. Like As Lamar Hunt. Lamar Hunt is. Yeah. So we got two oil guys. Two uh two sons of oil guys. Oh, so even more specific. Yeah, two sons of oil guys. And um unlike Lamar Hunt, who actually then, you know, spent most of his life focusing just on sports, uh Phil um worked on uh you know, oil and buying up land and um and uh actually uh, expanded his empire into railroads. He, I mean, he was sort of like the Monopoly man, you know, like like a real tycoon. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, at one point, I think he was the only billionaire in Colorado. He's like the only one. The only one for a while. Um, he was like one of the biggest landowners in all of the U.S. I think he still might be. Um, he's like you know a real heavy hitter, um, and he eventually then expands his empire into entertainment, and he opens. Uh, a company called AEG, Anschutz Entertainment right. Group. Um, they own the LA Kings. They own the Staples Center. They own part of the LA Lakers. Um, 
huge, huge company. And, and they, he was also a primary investor in, in at Major League Soccer as part of one of the original investors. So him and Lamar Hunt are on one side. They're like, we need to invest more. On the other side, you had a group of owners kind of led by Robert Kraft. Ah, uh, Kraft family. The yeah. Kraft family. And uh, he owns the New England Revolution. And his, uh, that group of owners really wanted to control costs, minimize losses. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll give you a little bit of background on, on Kraft. He is not an oil tycoon and wasn't born in an oil tycoon family. Um, his kind of fortune came from uh, run, uh, being part of a company and then eventually owning a company that focused on like um, paper packaging products. So you think about like opening up um, a box of anything, you know, like there's sometimes a cardboard insert. Yeah, they they need that. Yeah, yeah. that's that's I was what a his company designer. And, uh, so wait, corrugation, all that, all that stuff. Yeah, he also loves sports. He's from like the of course, Boston yeah. area, Patriots. Um, yeah, and so he wanted to buy the Patriots, but like the Patriots owner at that time didn't want to sell to him. And okay. so what he ends up doing is. Uh, buying Foxborough Stadium, which was not having the best financial time because at that point no one was really going to watch the Patriots. Okay, so he didn't buy the team. He went. He wasn't able to buy the team, but he's like, well, let me take the stadium. Let me take the stadium, and okay. because the stadium was like under financial duress, I think he bought it for like something like twenty million. That's it. Yeah, not that much. Um, and the stadium had a lease with the team, right? Yeah. And so the owner of the Patriots wanted to move. Um, the club because it wasn't making any money. Mm-hmm. And in order to move the club, you have to uh, to break that lease, right? Got it. And so he was trying desperately to negotiate with Kraft to be like, what will it take for me to get out of this lease? I'll pay you. And Kraft was like, nothing. Kraft was like, gotcha. I'm buddy. not going to let you out of this lease. Not my first rodeo. Yeah. And so he was like, well, I'm not making any money here. I like The Patriots aren't great. And so Kraft was like, well, and I'm assuming this is back when their logo was like a colonial dude, yeah, trying to hike the ball. I kind of like that logo, to be honest. Uh, sometimes they wear the throwback jerseys, right? Yeah, I like it. Um, so Kraft does. He's like, well, just, why don't you just sell the team? Why don't you sell it to me? Yeah. And so eventually this guy gets strong armed to selling Kraft the team, and then soon as it's sold to Kraft, I mean Kraft really turned around. Listen up, oil guys, you're not the only ones. Who yeah, know how to get things done. And to be honest, like. Uh, since he took over, I mean, I, like, I think season tickets went up. Like, mm-hmm. he really turned around the team. Sure, merchandise, probably. Merchandising, like, you know, he's it's one of the most successful teams of all of sports at this point. Of course. Right? Um, and so that's how he kind of went into um, NFL. But part of that was, like, you know, he, he owned Foxborough. Foxborough hosted some World Cup games. That's how he got into the Major League Soccer original investment group. Right? So that's a little bit of background on, on Kraft, one of the the forefathers of Major League Soccer. So you had two groups of owners kind of... Comp- yeah, two factions. Two factions that disagreed on what is the right approach moving forward. Uh, and they needed a strong leader, of which Doug Logan, um, the first Major League Soccer commissioner, was maybe not the strongest one. And so Kraft and specifically Hunt um, told Doug Logan, hey, we're losing confidence in you as the commissioner of the mm-hmm. league, and we're going to find a new commissioner. And... Since both of them owned an NFL team, they were like, hey, the NFL has run really well. Let's find someone with an NFL organization to, to run this league. And so they eventually... Yeah, find, so he's a working model. Yeah, it's a working model. Uh, and so they find a guy named Don Garber. Oh, our boy. 
the commish. The commish. Um, the Don, as we say it. So Don Garber at this point is like a 12-year league executive at NFL. Mm-hmm. Um, he starts off as a marketing manager, um, which makes me excited because that means like, can I be a commissioner of a league eventually one day? Hey, man, we can all dream. I know. Uh, and he climbs up the, the NFL corporate ladder to eventually run all of NFL International mm-hmm. and including NFL Europe. Do you remember like NFL had like a... A European league back in the day. Yeah, yeah, and I only remember that because of some some Madden game. I don't remember in, oh, in yeah. the, like the mid two thousands or something like that. Yeah, uh, they had like kind of how FIFA, uh, EA Sports is FIFA has like rest of the world and these random teams like the Orlando Pirates. Yeah, it was kind of like that, and it was just like where are these teams from? And I remember looking them up, and they're England. Yeah. And now, look at us now. I mean, we have a couple games in, that are shown in England yeah. every year. And so, like, uh, he was heading up that, not just to Europe, but also, like, this idea of, like, selling NFL internationally mm-hmm. as well, right? So, Kraft and Hunt approached Garber, and they're like, hey, what you're doing right now, you're taking an American game and you're selling it internationally? Yeah. Why don't you work on an international game and sell it to Americans, right? And Kind of the inverse. And did, did, you, did you mention where they're having this meeting? Um, so the meeting hasn't happened yet. So okay. the, the meet this is this is like the call out. This, this is the like, call hey, out. Hey, would you be interested in doing yeah. this? Got it. And so um, and so Don Garber agrees. He is named the leader of the league in August 1999. A few years pass. It's not getting any better, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, attendance is still declining outside of the Columbus Crew, which is opening the stadium. Right. Um, and famously, the first five years of the league, the league loses $250 million, which is Jeez. a lot of money. The second thing that was really distressing is like, you know, while we were talking about three owners, there were more than three owners in the beginning. Mm-hmm. There's way more investors. At this point, a lot of investors are jumping ship. There's only three owners left, so the three that we talked about. Of how many teams? Uh, Total? I, I think at this point it's uh, 12, 12 16 ish. 12 teams. 12 teams. So three owners between 12 teams. So yeah. Each one on average owns four of them. Um, so, the, so I think the league, so no one was owning two of the teams. Mm-hmm. And so the league was running two of them. Uh, Kraft owned, uh, was operating one, so the New England Revolution. Yep. Um, Lamar Hunt was operating three uh, Dallas, Kansas City, and Columbus. Okay. Uh, Phil Anschutz was operating six, Chicago Fire, Colorado Rapids, D.C. United, L.A. Galaxy, Metro Stars, and the San Jose Earthquake. So it sounds like things need to change because, I mean, so we talked earlier on uh, another episode that we've done before talking about competition. Yeah. Right? And we don't want the clubs necessarily competing with each other with this whole single entity thing. Yep. But if you kind of take a step back... It looks like the owners are like, now you're dealing with the same issues. Like some, you know, Anschutz got six teams under his belt. Yeah. Right? So anyway, I just want to bring up the idea of like how much of the MLS pie, like how many slices can you really have? Yeah. And do you think that's like an issue that's happening right now? This is now we're talking about the early 2000s, 1999-ish, right? Yeah. Um, I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm starting to get the picture of things being dire. It's dire. It's dire because single entity works, 
I mean, it obviously worked. We talked. We had an entire episode about mm-hmm. it, at least from a financial standpoint. But at this point, you had three owners basically footing the bill for the entire league. Right. And that's dire. Right? Yeah. It's one thing if, like, you're splitting the bill between ten owners mm-hmm. or five owners. Right. And now it's three, of which one owns more than half the league. Yeah. And that's uh, it's tough, especially when you're losing $250 million in the first five years. Yeah. So... Garber um, calls up Anschluss and is like, hey, let's have a meeting on your ranch, which I can only imagine how big this thing is in Colorado. <laughs> um, okay. bring, bring, let's bring Kraft, let's bring Hunt, all the families, um, and we're going to have a come to Jesus, basically, about the What league. does that mean? Basically meaning, like, we are, he's going to propose two things. Okay. Option one, double down. I know you lost a lot, a lot of money, but we got to double down on investments. Option two, fold the league. Ooh. And and to show how serious he was, he was like, I'm bringing my bankruptcy lawyers with me. He being who? Don Garber. Don Garber. G-Move brings his lawyers to the table. <laughs> He's like, a giant ranch we, that's not we, his. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can write up these papers right now. We can fold this league right now. But if you don't want to do that, the route forward is actually doubling down on the investment that you okay. guys have already made. So let's talk about what happens at the ranch. Yeah. So... So you're going to a bunch of billionaires who've already lost hundreds of millions of dollars in the league, and you're saying, we're ending things now, or we're doubling down and sp- spending even more millions of dollars. And that's not an easy thing to say, right? Right. Um, and the only way you can back that up is to showcase that you have a completely different roadmap that we had before. And so single entity is the first step mm-hmm. and the baseline of how you got the investors. The the other things that he brought to the table were the following. One, and this is a small thing, which is like, let's contract the teams that are not working out. So both the Florida teams out. Two, let's make it easier to make more revenues at a club basis. So like, you know, um, allow the teams to sell kind of their own uh, logos on the shirts, mm-hmm. right? So you can make more ways of you making money. What about jersey sales? Jersey sales, things like that. Okay. Um, so kind of saying less things in the league, more things at the individual club. Mm-hmm. Uh, number three, and this is something that we kind of talked about in our third episode. It's like, listen, the thing that happened in Columbus was great. Let's that is now the model. Yeah, let's make it make it the standard. Yeah, which is every team needs to have its own soccer specific stadium. Now I know we kind of talked about it, but I think it's worth rehashing on why this is so important. First, it's a better product. Yeah, you know, it's, and we talked about it ad nauseum. Giant Stadium versus Red Bull Arena, like Red Bull Arena. Yeah, so much better. So much better, just from a product standpoint. Uh, Second, huge improvement on finances for the owners, right? So if you are in a big stadium that you don't own, you're paying rent every Mm -hmm. game. You're not the first billing, so you don't have the first rights to the schedule. You have to deal with these giant football lines. You're not controlling vending rights. So if you're buying a beer in the stadium, you're not getting any of that pie. Yeah. Um, you're not, uh, getting some of the things like suites, like luxury suites, which are usually corporate sales. You're mm-hmm. not getting any naming rights. So it's a huge So these mar- are all the things that, you know, potentially have to change for things to be better. Yes. And that's right? the argument he's presenting. And the final thing, and this is something that's kind of overlooked a lot, is that when you get a stadium, um, you're not just getting the stadium, you're usually getting some of the area around the stadium. And that's like the commercial development around it. So usually you, you negotiate with the city, you get some land, and either you develop it yourself or you sell it to other developers. I'm going to make profit. another analogy here. Yeah. I'm going to go for it. Let's do it. All right. I went to a school, 
And by school, I mean a college. Yeah. Right? University. That's relatively small. Our high school, we went to the same high school, different times, right? You graduated first. My high school was bigger than my university in terms of numbers of how many students are there, mm -hmm. right? So if you go on my campus, it's kind of just the school. But you talk about any, any, any big, big, big school, mm -hmm. right? I went to Philadelphia University, now called Jefferson, and went through like three changes in names. But if you went to, you know, a UPenn, now you're talking about a college town. Now you're talking about a whole town that's conducive to the university and all these businesses that are in the vicinity are kind of tailored to the university, which is the bigger thing. Yeah. Right? So it's kind of like you can have that same mindset with stadiums. Yeah. Right? And, uh, you know, you used to live in Harrison. Yeah. Right? And I'm sure they're still developing it. They're still developing it up. I, I know that might not be the best example of it. But I think your your analogy of like UPenn, which is like, all right, you have the university, but also like the land around it. Mm -hmm. And the land is super valuable. Yeah. Whether you develop it or you sell it to someone else. And then, so that's the right, that's the right analogy in here. It's like when you're opening stadiums, you get land on top of it. Yeah. And the land is really attractive considering who we're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. So Kraft owns Foxborough Stadium. Like he knows what to do with it. And what about the land around it? And Phil Anschutz had like a uh, staple center, like and honestly, he owned basically half of Colorado at one point. Um, so, like, they know what to do with land. It's a right. very kind of financially viable solution, um, especially with this ownership group. So that, that those are kind of the summation of, like, why you want to open. The new model is every team needs a soccer-specific stadium. Got it. All right. The last one is, like, and probably the most important in the model in here is, like, uh, Don Garber was like, all right, we're opening a new organization mm -hmm. that is owned by all the MLS owners, but it's separate and it's called Soccer United Marketing. And so the idea is like, you know, as a league, you have staff that's like focused on sales and marketing, yeah. but that's only focused on Major League Soccer commercial interests. But like, why not make a bet, not just on Major League Soccer, but all of soccer in the U.S., right? All right. So we might as well. So this is a crazy fact to think about, like the 2002 World Cup at that point like that no was, uh, Japan and Korea. Yeah. Joint. No nobody in, no English broadcaster in the United States was wanting to pay money for it. Meaning what? Because soccer wasn't as popular and it was like being run in Japan so the time difference was bad. Yeah, yeah. And so, so like like you know your ABCs or Foxes they weren't going to bid So money they didn't for, see it as valuable. They didn't see it as valuable. And so what the group did was like Phil um Kraft Hunt all of them kind of said, all right, let's make a Soccer United marketing. We're going to throw $70 million. We're going to get the rights of the 2002 and 2006 World Cup. We're betting on all of soccer in the U.S. And then Soccer United Marketing would hire sales and marketing staff to eventually work out deals with ESPN and ABC to broadcast it, sell commercials. Which, by the way, just a reminder, not that we need to remind anybody, but 2002 was a great year. For Great US, year. U.S. soccer. And, you know, I'm not sure if they actually made a profit off of it, but, like, fundamentally a showcase of the business model because a few years after that, they got the rights for all the commercial interests in the Mexican national team, which, by the way, if you don't know, is probably the most popular national team in the U.S. Yeah. And then the year after, they got the rights to promote and the commercial interests of U.S. soccer itself, right? Followed by, I think, eventually they got the CONCACAF Gold Cup. They got some CONMEBOL games. 
At the end of the day, if there's soccer being promoted inside the United States, chances are Soccer United Marketing has a hand in it. And a Don Garber would understand this, and this is what he's kind of presenting. So right. what's, what's the result at the ranch? The result on the ranch is that, you know, you it broke that kind of back and forth on whether we invest more or we cut losses. Mm -hmm. And everyone agreed we are doubling down, yeah. right? And so the and owner, finding better ways to invest. Better ways to invest. And so we're doubling down by investing in more stadiums. So the next stadium that was built was in, um, I think, 2003 in L.A. with the Home Depot Home Center. Home Depot Center, yeah. So um, Phil Anschutz uh, AAG uh, made that happen. Um, Ten years after that, and by 2013, 11 stadiums were built. Yeah. Right? Um, including the one that you know, I live right next to, which is Red Bull Arena. Yeah. Um, Such a good ground. And, for you know, the game. Yeah. And, and you know, by today, we mentioned this earlier, there's like 19 of them. Um, there's a there's a more than a few more on the way. And overall, the owners of Major League Soccer spend over close to $2 billion in private funds in these stadiums, right? So it's a significant investment, not to mention, you know, they got public funds as well. I think that's a, another $2 billion from public funds. That's a whole other podcast. Um and it's totally, totally transformed kind of fan experiences, right? So when uh, they first had, when they were having this meeting at the ranch, mm -hmm. um, uh, the average MLS attendance was like 14,000. It was decreasing like 10, 15, 20% every year. Um, now, today, it's over 21,000, Yeah. right? So it's, it's actually, if you look at the rankings of all soccer leagues around the world, it's actually pretty high up there. Um, Soccer United Marketing now today is worth more than $2 billion on its own. By itself. By itself, right? And every year it gives $150 million of profits back to the owners of MLS, which then offsets if a team is operating at a loss, it offsets some of the losses. So there's just more st stability going it's, around. It's a way more stability, right? And so if you think about it, an owner now doesn't just own the rights to operate a club. As we talked about, Singularity actually owns part of MLS and also owns part of Soccer United Marketing. And that is one of the reasons why these expansion fees are so getting higher and higher and mm -hmm. higher. I think uh, the rumor is the expansion fee for the 30th team will be as much as $300 million. It makes sense because you're buying, become more valuable over this time. you're buying into all of MLS and honestly part of all of soccer. Yeah, you know, like as a concept, as a concept in the United States, um, and that's why today the values of MLS clubs are so so high. You know, I, the Forbes ranking just came out, and Atlanta United is valued to five hundred million dollars, half a billion, half a billion, and that would rank easily, I think, in the top twenty. In that one's that one for me is easier to believe than Chicago Fire being four hundred, but they are moving to Soldier Field, and that seems like a big deal. Yeah, but, but yeah, even even so, that's just an amazing number. Yeah, and so like I let's let's talk a little bit about that because mm -hmm. you're right. You were like, wait a minute, like Chicago Fire is not doing that well. I mean, they just spend a lot of money to break a lease. Right. Dax McCarty is now commentating. Yeah, you know, like and then you know uh, Schweinsteiger's out, and it's just like, what's the status of this club? Atlanta's the exact opposite. I mean, this city, like you, every bar you go to has Atlanta United stuff. It's probably I'm, it might be the most popular team now that the Falcons are tolerable. You know, like oh yeah. Um, and but to say like that one's only worth a hundred million dollars or reflects the business model because right. 
the difference between the two clubs, that's only one third of it. Right. We keep co- we keep coming back to the concept of parity. Yeah. You know, one third of it is the difference between the clubs. Two thirds of the value is the same, which is you have the same stake in MLS, mm-hmm. same stake in Soccer United Marketing. Right. Yeah. And so uh, I think that's a really good example of uh, showcases the model as well. Um, and so by 2015, uh, Phil Anschutz and AEG uh, sell the majority rights of the Houston Dynamo. Okay. And that was a landmark time because uh, that was the point where every single club had a different ownership group, right? So you went from two th- uh, 1999, where um, only three owners are in the league, owning mm-hmm. everything. Now, fast forward to today, every single club has a different ownership group. And that shows you how kind of diverse the ownership group is, but also that this new model is super successful. Um and so, like, I know we're not in the, uh, we're not MLS fans because we like seeing business models. Um, there was a, mm, I don't know, man. I think you love business models. I love business models, but I don't, the average MLS fan, I don't think I care less a right. little bit. Um, right. I think some fans actually hate the model itself. Um, fair. That's another podcast. Yeah. Really. But um, I think uh, we don't talk about promotion relegation. Yeah, we, we don't. We, we, we avoid that conversation altogether. Yeah. Uh, someone on Twitter actually posted to me on something I wrote about valuations when the Forbes stuff came out, and he wrote, like, uh, I think, uh, for Tom, tongue firmly in cheek, uh, Soccer United Marketing was awesome in that CONCACAF match, but single entity could have been better, <laughs> which was a hilarious tweet. Um, so, yeah, no one watches it for business models, but the fact that we're tweeting about MLS at all, the fact that we are mad about our team's performance and in these soccer-specific stadiums. Yeah, you got to give credit where it's due. The fact that all this, the fact that we're having this podcast is honestly, and I'm not being facetious, is only here because of that meeting that happened in Uncle Phil's ranch. I mean, yeah, when you show up to somebody's ranch with a bunch of lawyers saying like, hey, if you want to just end this right now, we can do that. Uh, I mean, that says everything, doesn't it? They call him the Don for a reason, man. <laughs> um, and that's that's the story. That's the story of Uncle Phil's Ranch. That's episode five, everybody. We were talking about Don Garber, who's a G. Yeah. And um, Uncle Phil's Ranch in a very important meeting. And as always, we're going to read off some sources. Yep. Um, the first one here is uh, Garber opens up on uh, Soccer United Marketing's role in U.S. soccer and MLS by Grant Wall for Sports Illustrated. Um, the second one is MLS Goes to Near Extinction to Remarkable Success by Kevin Baxter for the LA Times. Third one is An Insider Look on Why Billionaires Buy Into Money Losing Major League Soccer by Bill Shea for The Athletic. It's a new one. It's a great, great article. If you don't have an athletic, uh, if you don't have an athletic kind of uh, account um, and subscription, it's definitely worth it. Um, and the last one is, is you know, Don Garber, Truly in Honor, uh, by German Sfrera uh, for U.S. Soccer. And from me, man, Robert Kraft, what up? If you could find a better way for me to recycle cardboard, can you make some corrugation patterns that makes it easy for me to break them down? I don't know. I just felt like talking about that for a second. But follow us on Twitter. What's, what is it? 25 at 25 underscore Score, stories stories and then also you know subscribe rate or review us tell a friend and my message to robert Kraft is you know maybe try to open a new stadium and maybe for, stop for the new england revolution everybody in Patriots. football yeah yeah jeez episode five in the books thanks for listening bye